I, I am believing God that what he does in these next few weeks is going to be so real and so significant to us that it will set a standard that we will never be happy if we drop below it. Amen. And that we'll never be content if we slide back into some level of mediocrity in any area of our lives, that it will be a work that we don't forget or get over. And that God will do something significant. And so that when people look at this church weeks from now, months, years from now, they will know that the glory of God has chosen to reside in this place and on this people for this season in our lives. That's what I'm asking God to do. Now, I said all of that to talk about will we ever see the glory again, which is exactly what the people of God around this country are asking. We spent some time with friends uh, while we were in the mountains. We also spent some time that you know, and we spent some time with other friends up there that you do not know, but people who love the Lord and, and are faithful to Him. And they're just dying and crying out for God to do something in their churches. They're so tired of just going through the motions. But, I mean, when couples sit across a table that live seven hours from me and say, tell me what we can do, we, we're not getting what we need out of our church. Our church is fussing and fighting. I mean, one lady told me that the head of their prayer ministry stood outside the prayer room and ran down the pastor of the church after he had just come out of the prayer room. And I said, well, you need to get rid of the head of your prayer ministry, the first thing, because he's not living a godly life. Amen. You need to deal with that. And there's some things that you need to do to make some adjustments. But when I, when I spend time with these people, I ache for them and I hurt for them because God has done so many good things for us and so many wonderful things for us. And yet at the same time, I don't want us to be satisfied or content with what he's done. I want us to want that something more to always be climbing and never achieving, but that there's that desperation in us <clears throat> that desires to God to do something that we cannot explain except that God did it. Amen. So, Malachi is asking a question, and God's people are asking a question, will the glory ever come again? Now, let me <clears throat> give you the background. I'm going to need that water, dear. I can tell. Mark is dear. Thank you, dear. <laughs> We're going to have to have a talk after the service, Mark. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> Malachi is talking to people that have come back from Babylonian captivity, and they have rebuilt the temple and started the sacrificial system up again. And in the middle of rebuilding the temple and starting all the sacrifices again, they came to believe that the glory of God would show up in that temple just like he had in Solomon's temple. That, that the glory would come back to the nation. But it hadn't. It had been a hundred years. <clears throat> and it had not come back yet. 
And so they began to develop a callous and cynical attitude that said, well, if God's not going to take the fact that we invested all this time and energy in building this building, and if he's not going to show up in his glory like he did in the past, like we've heard about, then we're not going to take him serious either. If he's not going to take us serious, we're not going to take him serious. And so they began to be cynical, even while going to worship. And they began to say, we don't think the Lord's glory is coming back. And they began to almost taunt the Lord. Now, I've said before that I I grew up in Mississippi. Once I found out that the borders were open, I got out as quick as I could. Somebody asked me one time, said, you know, what, how do you, what do you attribute that so many good preachers, and I mean, we've had denominational heads and all kinds, so many good preachers have come out of Mississippi. I said, the operative word is come out. <laughs> you know, I read that verse in the Bible, said come out from among them. And I said, I'm leaving and I'm not going back. But I grew up in Mississippi. My dad went to Ole Miss. He graduated in 1948. <clears throat> and, um, I donated all their war letters uh, to the university, and, and I've been an Ole Miss fan all my life. Haven't had much to cheer about. Uh, you go to Ole Miss and you stand in the Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, and you'll see the banners for three national championships and six SEC titles. But the days of Johnny Vaught have been over since 1973. And he died this year, and he's not coming back to coach us back to glory. There are Alabama people that still live like Bear Bryant. One day he's going to come out of the grave, and they're going to win another national championship. Why? Because we look back on a former day, and we say, oh, that's when God was blessing. And that's when God was moving. And we ask God to to do something like he did back then. But in reality, what we need to be asking him is to do something fresh and new in us and distinct. He only did Pentecost one time. There's only going to be one second coming. I mean, Jesus didn't. uh, When you read the Bible, there are events that are in and of themselves worthy of remembering, but they are one time events. And the glory of God came on the temple, and the people took it for granted, and they kept up the rituals, and the glory didn't come back. And when I read this book this week, I thought about a lot of Ole Miss football fans that still think they're going to win an SEC championship one day, but until our coach gets saved and cleans up his mouth and quits hitting his offensive coordinator, we're not going to have anything happen, which is just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. Point number one. You can be faithful to the rituals and be a backslider in your heart. You can be faithful to the rituals and be a backslider in your heart. Check all the boxes on the offering envelope, did this, did this, did this. You know, I remember when I was growing up, my mom used to say, did you read your Bible every day? Did you, you know, did you, and got to go through and check all the boxes. And boy, you know, my mother was the ultimate guilt tripper. I mean, she could lay a guilt trip on God. I mean, she just was terrible. And she you didn't do that. You know, and I wanted to say, well, you didn't either, but she'd have slapped me and I wouldn't have been here today. So uh, Malachi asked a series of questions. And, And when you read the book of Malachi, you see that there is a dialogue 
and actually a debate that is going on in this book. This is the most dialogue you read of any book in the Bible outside of the book of Job. And by the way, it's, it's, uh, Stephen was mentioning, the book of Job was very one-sided. Job spent a lot of chapters asking questions, and when God finally spoke, he never answered them. In chapter 38, he said, you know, you're bothering me. That's not what Job expected to hear. He confronted Job. And so God is asking questions and having this dialogue. The name Malachi means my messenger. Now, it's interesting that God's last word, last warning to his people was through a man named my messenger. There was no mistaking who Malachi was. And the only reason they're called minor prophets is because the books are small, not because their messages have less value. They have powerful words for us that we need to learn today. So I want to kind of walk through this with you. And I want you to kind of think of this under the setting of they were disappointed in God, but they were satisfied with themselves. And we can get that way. We can become disappointed with God and be very satisfied with ourselves and almost smug about how we are. Well, I'm better than a lot of other people. And so look at it, beginning in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? First thing you need to notice is that apathy is the opposite of love. Hatred is not the opposite of love, not in the spiritual realm. Apathy is the opposite of love. Remember what God said to the church? He said, you have left your first love. Why? They had become apathetic. They said, well, how have you loved us? I mean, they're questioning the love of God. Second thing in verse 6, O priest who despise my name. Now he's talking to the preachers there. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? Second thing is this, despising is the opposite of reverence. When I don't revere God, in fact, what I do is despising to him because it is not with a pure and sincere heart, an unadulterated, unmixed, undefiled heart. Chapter 2 and verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Third principle is wearying is the opposite of delighting. I mean, can you believe that God would say about his people, you're wearing me out? You're driving me crazy. I'm weary of what you're doing. Wearying is the opposite of delighting in God. That there is a chance that we can weary God as the Pharisees did with vain repetitions or with hollow sounding words and not meaning what we say or or what we sing. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? in tithes and offerings. Fourth principle is robbing is the opposite of giving or of sacrifice. If I'm not giving the way God tells me to give, then I'm in fact robbing God. Chapter 3 and verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. See, that's where we get this, you know, 
we've been doing all this stuff, we've rebuilt the temple, we've gone through all the sacrifices, and you still haven't shown up in your glory, and you still haven't shown up in your blessings, and so it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge? Arrogance is the opposite of humility. Arrogance, their words were arrogant. God said, I loved you. They said, when? Can't prove it to us. God said, you've despised my name. They said, when? God, you're wrong about that. God said, you've robbed me. They said, how? We haven't robbed you. They, they had lost all sensitivity to God. You know, we can sit in church and we can be around the things of God so much that we become so familiar with them that it is not easy for our hearts to be pricked. The same word that softens also hardens. And if we're not careful, sitting in church and not obeying what God says, we build another layer against God's Spirit being able to speak to us. And what I believe has to happen is God has to begin to peel back the layers because we don't normally just drop our defenses and our excuses and, and all of the stuff we build up around our lives. We don't normally just drop that immediately unless there's a crisis. God has to begin to peel it away from us and pluck it out of our lives until he can get to us and the core uh, of who we are. You see, they were away from God and they didn't know it. They did their duty, but they had no delight. There was no joy in what they were doing. Uh, they, they were serving God more and enjoying it less. There was no delight in their worship. There was no delight in their sacrifices. They did their work, whatever their job was to do. They came to the temple and they did it, but they didn't worship. Now, let me tell you why that's something that we need to consider and understand. It is very easy for us. Remember when you first got saved? I mean, you told people about it, didn't you? I mean, you just, I, mean I, just, I just got saved. I just gave my life to Jesus. I mean, it, remember when God answered a big prayer for you? You told people about it. I mean, you, you weren't ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You told people about it. But, you know, the problem is after we're in church a while, we see enough hypocrites that we just kind of begin to get callous. And we, we start saying things like, well, God, you're sure lucky to have me because some of the people that I know around here are not really all that hot in their spiritual walk. And, I, I, you know, if you didn't have me in this church, I don't know what you'd do. And we can get prideful and puffed up and think we're doing God a favor. That's a danger for any church. It's a danger for any Christian that we begin to think that God needs us and has to have us. He is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need any of us. And so we can't get arrogant and puffed up. and We can't just come and do our jobs and say, well, Lord, I've done my job. I've done it with a grudge. I've done it with a bad attitude. But, but you, you're just going to have to accept it. You see, God didn't say to them, change the form of worship. He wasn't saying to them, your worship is all wrong. He was saying to them, your heart is what's wrong. You're not putting your heart into your worship. You're not giving me your best. The second thing he confronts him with is we're the ones that need to adjust, not the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, I had to think about this one for a while. 
Isn't it interesting that he calls them the sons of Jacob, not the sons of Israel? Jacob was the twister, the supplanter, the conniver, the one that, you know, you'd have been spanking every day. I mean, he was just the troublemaker. He was the one that caused everybody grief. He just always had his own agenda. And God says, I don't change, but you've reverted back from being my people, Israel, to acting like Jacob before I crippled him and wrestled with him and got him to admit that he wasn't all he thought he was. You've gone backwards. You've reverted back. Now, you can trace this all the way through the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament and you get to Joshua, for instance, you, Joshua says to the people, put away the strange gods and false gods that your fathers had in Egypt. Now, that verse blows my mind. I mean, here are people who have seen all the plagues of Egypt. They have seen all the judgment of God on Egypt. They've gone. They've seen what happened when they built the golden calf. They've walked around the wilderness. They've been fed every day. They've gotten water when they needed it. They've been protected by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And, and God has met every need of their lives. And when Joshua says they're ready to go in the land, he says, now y'all get rid of all those gods that your fathers brought from Egypt. He's talking to the children of the people who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They wouldn't believe God. They wouldn't take God at His word. God said, that's your land. Go take it. And they said, no, we're not going to take it. We got a committee and decided it's not a good idea, which is the only time God ever had a committee. You see, here are people who are caring. What happened is, Mom and dad wrote their will, and they left their idols that they had taken out of Egypt to their kids and their will. Mom and dad are dead. This is this new generation, and here's this God that looks like a cow, and God looks like, and they're saying, well, you know, it looks so good on the fireplace. You know, it's just a nice little trinket. It doesn't mean anything to us. And Joshua says, you've got to get rid of any resemblance of worship in Egypt, and you've got to become true to my worship because you will have no false images among you. Get rid of the false gods. Get rid of the things that have cropped up in your life or have stayed in your life that you've carried with you. And here they are 40 years after Egypt, 40 years of God's provision in the wilderness, and there's still elements of false gods in their midst. By the way, have you ever thought about the fact that every time Israel got in trouble, now think about this. Every time Israel got in trouble, they ran to Egypt for help. That's what Abraham did, and he got rebuked for it. They always wanted to go back to Egypt. And all you ever read about Egypt is garlic, leeks, and onions. I mean, who wants to hang around with that group? You know, you're going to sing Breathe on Me all the way back to Egypt? I mean, <laughs> they always wanted to go back. What was Egypt? Self-sufficiency. Living life on my terms. Crying out to God, but not expecting God to do anything. Not living in the victorious life that God has for me. I want to go back to Egypt where man will take care of my needs. And others will provide for me, not the Lord God of heaven. And so God says, I'm the Lord, I do not change. You, have, you ever, have you ever thought about the fact that, that God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, Jesus, and the disciples never had a problem with the sovereignty of the unchanging God? Never bothered them one bit. They said, God's sovereign. 
didn't bother them a bit to say that. They didn't say, well, you know, maybe he's not sovereign in this situation. God was always sovereign to them. They didn't know God any other way but that he was sovereign and that he ruled over the affairs of men. He says, I do not change. I'm the same God I was in the beginning. I'm the I am. You notice that God did not say, I'm the I was or the I is, but I'm the I am. Why? Because he always is. He's the consistent one. Everything in our lives can be inconsistent, but not the Lord. He's always consistent. Which leads me to the third thing. God chose us. Sometimes we act like we're doing him a favor. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. Now we could camp here for about three days, but I'm going I'm to go through this fairly quickly, but I'm going to go through it anyway. Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness." Now, God manifested his love in a number of ways. He manifested it through the law. He manifested it through the covenants. He manifested his love through the prophets. He manifested his love through the word. And he says now here that he has loved Jacob, but hated Esau. That doesn't seem right, does it? Why in the world would God say to Abraham, Ishmael is not the one? Abraham says to God, oh God, would you just spare Ishmael? You know why Ishmael wasn't the one? Ishmael was Abraham's way of trying to help God do his will. Oh God, you said I'd be a great nation. Here's a maidservant, so I'll take this maidservant. My wife thinks it's a good idea, and I'll take this maidservant, and we'll have a child, and that'll solve all your problems. You won't even have to get involved. And God said, no. I choose Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, there's a blessing for Ishmael in the Bible, but it's not the same blessing as the blessing for Isaac. Now we get to Jacob. And God has chosen Jacob, but he says, I hate Esau. You say, well, I thought God was a God of love. He is. God chooses to love people that don't deserve his love. People like me. I'm not worthy of the love of God. Are you? I'm not. He chooses to love Jacob. I chose Jacob. I rejected Esau. Now, if I had been the one choosing, I would have chosen Esau. I mean, the boy had some problems, but he wasn't like Jacob. You know, Jacob probably was grounded from the time he was nine to the time he was 18. I mean, he probably never got to go out of the house. I mean, here's a kid that just didn't do anything right. And here's Esau, and he sells his birthright. But God says, I choose Jacob. 
the crafty, the twister, the supplanter, the deceptive one. And by the way, there's nothing in the Bible that says that God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau, and that's why he chose him. He just made a choice. But if someone had the edge, it was probably Esau. But, you know, God chose a nation too, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, God didn't love Israel because they were bigger or better or nicer or better looking or anything else. God loved Israel because he chose to love Israel. He set his heart on them. And if I read my Bible correctly, even though Israel has rejected the Messiah, there's still a plan for Israel in the end times. And you better not mess with Israel unless you want the wrath of God. You say, well, how can a country so small be so strong? Because they've got a spiritual power they don't even recognize. And they've got a hand of protection they don't even recognize. It was God that brought them back together. Everybody says the United Nations brought Israel back together in 1948. The United Nations takes credit for a lot of things it's never done. They didn't bring Israel back together. God brought them back together because he said there was going to come a day when they'd come back together. And they did. Now, here's where I want you to understand some things. This is a truth of Scripture that you cannot always explain. God chose, which deals with election and with predestination. And those are big subjects and deep subjects, and you can't always understand everything about them. But I believe that God chooses because that's what the Bible says He does. Ephesians says he chose us for his own good pleasure. You can't get around that. I mean, those words are not open to various interpretations. God chose to use Christ. God chose the church. God chose the disciples. When you get down and you look at it, now, I believe election, and and I believe in the choosing because the Bible teaches it. I also believe, which is a hard balance, in the responsibility of man because Romans says that man will stand before God without excuse that he rejected the Messiah. Now, here's something I want you to grasp with me, if you will. Any confusion on those subjects that are in tension with one another is on my part, not on the Bible's part. God's not confused about how all this works. I can be. I can be uncertain. God's not. So any confusion, it's, this is going to be the same thing when we talk about, when we went through Revelation and we talked about that, and, and when we go through uh, this series on the King is Coming, we're going to talk about that. There are interpretations of whether the rapture of the church is going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation or if it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation or if it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation or if it's not even going to happen at all. They're the amillennialists who think it'll all work out in the end. I mean, they just, there's every spectrum of view on that subject. Somebody's got to be wrong. I mean, we can't all be right on that. 
Does everybody understand? Are you with me? I mean, we can't all be right. I mean, the people that say he's coming and he's going to take the church out before the tribulation begins. And some people say, no, I believe that we're going to be here during those first three years. But in, before the wrath, the bowls of wrath are poured out, that, that God's going to take the church out. They both can't be right. But they both ought to learn to live together. Because whenever he takes the church out, those that are in the church are all going. And he's not consulting us on the day or the time or the way. And so one of the things I'd encourage you to do sometimes is put up your charts and start looking to Jesus. You know, I get a little weary of all these charts. I'm getting into my second coming series. I'll get a little weary of all this because everybody's got it figured out that it's going to happen like this and happen like that and happen like this. And Jesus said, I don't even know the hour. My Father's going to tell me when it's time. So if Jesus doesn't know, then the preachers on TV don't know either. No matter how many books they sell, they don't know either. You say, how do you balance God's choosing and man's responsibility. I don't have to. That's God's plan. I don't have to balance that. I have to live with the tension of it. As Spurgeon said, that when you enter the gates of heaven, it will, it will say, whosoever will may come. And you turn around and you look at the gate from that side of heaven, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Listen, folks, nobody's going to be in heaven because they thought it was a good idea. Everybody that's in heaven is going to be because God put his hand on them. He put his heart on them. He put his Holy Spirit to convict them. They came to an awareness of Jesus Christ. You and I don't save anybody. God does the saving. And God said, I chose Jacob. Have you ever met a Christian that God chose and you thought, Lord, what were you thinking? <laughs> There's probably somebody who's looked at you and said, Lord, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you doing? You, you see, he has chosen us for his good pleasure. My problem is not in his choosing. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that he would choose me. That's what blows my mind. Because there was nothing in me. Now I want you to write this down. It's about to come up on the screen. God didn't look down and say, saw something in you that was worthy of choosing you for salvation. God didn't look down and see something in you that was worthy of choosing you for salvation because that would be salvation by works and that would destroy grace. Oh, well, bless his little heart. His mama thinks he's a sweet boy, so I'm just going to choose him. No, dead in trespasses and sin. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I have nothing that I can offer Jesus except a sinner's heart that needs to be cleansed. God doesn't see anything in me that makes me worthy of saving other than he sees Jesus and he sees me through Jesus. Otherwise, I've had something to do with my salvation and I haven't had anything to do with my salvation. Everybody okay? All right, I may have muddied the water, but at least we got some water in the basin, okay? The only basis of God's choosing is that it pleases Him to do so. 
You say, well, how do we know who the chosen are? You don't. So you better tell everybody about Jesus because God knows who's going to respond and who's not. That's not my responsibility. It's like the man who came up to D.O. Moody one day and he was drunk and he said, Mr. Moody, I got saved at one of your meetings. He said, you, you saved me. And he said, I must have saved you because if Jesus had saved you, you wouldn't be acting like you are. <laughs> you see, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't have it. Everybody okay with that? Does there, is everybody in here understand that you didn't have anything to do with the fact that God set his heart on you? Nobody, nobody had anything to do with that. God just did it. Could have happened when you were five or nine or 19 or 59. But all of a sudden, God's Holy Spirit began to work on you, and you woke up to the fact that you were a sinner against a holy God. And as a sinner against a holy God, you could do nothing to save yourself and clean the crud and the junk out of your life. And the Holy Spirit showed you that it was only through falling at the mercy of Jesus and through His love and through His grace and through His blood that you could ever find salvation. And when you agreed with God that God's way to salvation is the only way, and God's Holy Spirit did a transforming life inside of you. He just chooses to do it. Now, that's nothing to be arrogant about. In fact, it ought to make us humble. Israel got arrogant about it. They said, well, you know, we're the chosen people of God. And God had to remind them, you know, I chose you, but you weren't much when I got a hold of you. And we weren't either. You know, it amazes me that God gets anything done with what he's got to work with. How about you? I mean, it just amazes me. I mean, I did some channel surfing Sunday morning in the mountains. And I thought, Lord, you didn't die for this. It was terrible. I mean, the preaching was bad. The singing was bad. I mean, you know, make a joyful noise. It wasn't joyful, and it wasn't even a good noise. I mean, you know, and I thought, Lord, how in the world? But God does it. I don't understand it. If he consulted with me, he would do it differently. But he's not asked my opinion about this, and so I'm just going to move on, which brings me to point number four. We may be more impressed with our worship than God is. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 10. You see, you can never separate worship from sacrifice as far as God is concerned. You can never separate worship from sacrifice as far as God is concerned. Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now, please understand, God did not say in this verse, I've decided to break the covenant. What God said is, I have a covenant with you, but I'm not happy with the way you're worshiping. I'm not impressed with what you're doing. I wish somebody would come in and shut the doors. I would rather us not have church than for us to have it on these terms. That's what God's saying. And by the way, it takes a mighty big sacrifice to beat none at all. You need to think about that one for a while. God's longing for somebody to shut the door. Now look at verse 1, uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. 
To defile the Lord's table was to defile the Lord. It meant there was a failure to respect and recognize God as their source. And so the defiled altar was defiled in two ways. One, by their attitude about their worship, and two, by their imperfect offerings. They defiled the Lord's table because they went to it with uselessly kindling fire, just going through the motions, and they were bringing imperfect offerings. Look at verse 13. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it. Let me tell you what that picture is. That's a picture of God's people turning their nose up to God. He said, you turn your nose up to me when you worship. You walk in here with your nose in the air when you worship. And he says, you, you say it's tiresome, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, and so you bring the offering. And I have written in the margin of my Bible, they were giving God roadkill. Wasn't any good to eat. So they would find a lamb, and it would have been attacked by a wolf or by some other animal, and it would have been torn to shreds. And they'd say, you know, we could take this to church and offer uh, to the temple and offer this to God, and, and at least it's better than nothing. Because we've got a lamb at home, but we love that lamb. That lamb's like a pet to us, and we're not about to give that lamb up because God's done anything for us lately, so we're not going to do anything for him. And so they were offering God dead carcasses that they'd found along the side of the road. The lame, the sick, and the blemished. Things not fit for human hands, not fit to eat, and not acceptable to God, but they were bringing it to God, verse 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. Now in verse 14, he's talking about this vow, this voluntary thing that is being done, and they are making a vow and they make a pledge, but they don't fulfill the vow, and they don't fulfill the pledge. And so he says, I'm a great king. And then he goes on to say, now, you know, offer that to your governor. Let me bring that up to date. What he's saying is, I want you to try to tell the IRS that you're not going to give them what you owe them, like you're telling me you're, gonna give, you're not going to give me what you owe me. See where that gets you. Offer that to your governor, he says. Go to your governor and say, well, you're just going to have to take what I want to give you because I'm not going to give you what you want and what you desire and what you demand. I'm just going to give you the lame and the blemish. I'm going to give you the, the stuff that I don't need or the things I don't want. And God says, I'd rather you not worship than to offer the kind of worship that you're offering. You know, it is frightening to me to think that there have been times in my life when God was not pleased with my worship, and I probably would have done better staying at home with my attitude the way it was. God takes seriously worship. Here's what they were doing. Let, let me illustrate this. Let's say that I, I go out to eat, and, you know, you leave a tip, and now they've got the little things that tell you, it's 10%, 12%, 15 18 and 20 They already go ahead and figure the tip for you because they want to help you out, you know. So uh, they, they figure all that for you. And, and uh, I have a practice of always, I mean, unless it is terrible, I leave a 20% tip. 
because I know too many waitresses and waiters that are struggling to make a living. And the worst thing that happens is Sunday morning after church when God's people go to restaurants and people are working and we leave a track for them and don't leave them enough money to go home and feed their family. That's wrong. But let's say I went and I, I had service and I just got a, and I paid the bill and I got up and left. And I didn't leave a tip. Now the waitress could assume in me not leaving a tip that I just forgot it. Or she could assume that I took the ticket up to the front and I put the tip on the ticket up at the front and I paid it at the register and she'll get it at the end of the evening. She could assume that. But if I leave a penny, she's going to know one thing. I didn't like her service. If all I do is put a penny down on the table and it comes down to the end of the day and I left her a penny, she's going to know they didn't like my service. They must be mad at me or they're cheap or they're typewads or whatever, but they didn't like my service. And, and here's what God is saying to the people of Israel. You come to me and you leave a penny. It would be better if you just got up and left than to come to me and give me something like that. It's a greater insult to give a worthless gift than no gift. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. Now in verse 11, God's using a little sarcasm. He's exaggerating his point. What he's saying is, in the nations, they'll praise me better than you praise me. And didn't that come true? When God went and gave the gospel to the Gentiles, didn't it become true that the nations of the world gathered at Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell, and the nations of the world were impacted by the Holy Spirit of God, and now the nations praise Him, and Israel still denies Him that He has come as Messiah. And so they're giving God these leftovers, but I want to remind you of something, and I ask you to write it down. The acceptability of any gift the acceptability of any gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. The acceptability of any gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. So what does God expect? Matthew 5, 23, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Our sacrifices reveal our estimation of God, our true estimation of God. And he says in verse 6, where is my honor? In chapter 2 and verse 2, if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings and indeed have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. That word honor is also the word glory, and it has to do with something that is heavy and weighty. Where are you giving my name weight in your life? Substance in your life. They were robbing God. Now let me just mention something here because we talked about this a lot this morning.
And this is a principle that Ron Dunn taught me, and I've never forgotten it. In fact, I preached a message, and I used this statement in it uh, in probably 1991 or 92, and I used this statement in that message because when Ron helped me to understand this principle, it helped me to understand why God expects us to do what He expects us to do. Here's the principle. God withholds for Himself. God always reserves for Himself, or He withholds for Himself, something in the physical realm. God always withholds for Himself something in the physical realm where man makes his living. God always withholds something for himself in the physical realm where man makes his living to remind man that God is sovereign owner. God always keeps something for himself in the physical realm where man makes his living to remind man that God is sovereign owner. Now, how did he do that? Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, perfect environment. God said, you can have anything. It's all yours. I'm going to bless you. Oh, there's this one tree. And don't eat the fruit off of that tree. Because in the day you eat the fruit off that tree, you'll die. Now, why did God withhold that? Because he was being mean to Adam and Eve? No. God was reminding them that what they were given dominion over, over was God's not theirs. God did it with the tree. God did it with the land. You remember they were to let the land rest. Now, if you want to talk about having faith in God, and Ray and some other folks are farmers in here, you want to talk about having faith in God. When they came to certain times in the Jewish calendar, not only did they have to let the land rest for every seven years, they had it let, let it rest for one, but there came a point where they had to let the land rest for two Years They could not plant crops for two years. And what God was saying to them, you're going to have to trust that I'm the Lord of the harvest. You're going to have to trust that I'm the one that provides. And I don't want you lifting a finger to plant anything. I want you to watch me give you an increase that you can't get on your own. So you remember that the land that you work belongs to me. And they didn't. They plowed the land every year. And they did it for hundreds of years. And you know how many years they were in captivity? Seventy. You know how many years that they had not obeyed God on the land? Seventy. God sent Israel into captivity not because he hated them, but because he wanted them to understand that there was a principle that he always withheld something for himself that they would know that he is sovereign God and he's in charge. God did it in the garden. God did it with the tree. God did it with the Sabbath, and he did it with the tithe. Why does God tell us the tithe? Because he just wants us to write checks to the church? No. God does it so that every time we have a dollar that we can spend, we remember that God is the source of what we have. I'm not the source. You say, well, man, I work hard for my money. Good for you. Who gave you the air to breathe where you can work hard for your money? Amen. Who gave you the mental capacity where you could hold a job? Who gave you all that you have? God gave it all to you. And when He gives you, every time you get a check, you ought to say, God, you're the source of this. You see, 
In a sense, I work for Sherwood Baptist Church. But in a greater sense, I work for Kingdom of God Incorporated. Now, the check may come through the church, but the source of that is God. You say, no, man, the source of that's my tithe. Really. If you stop tithing, God still take care of me. Because you're not my source. God's perfectly able to take care of me. I've told people all my ministry, if God sees that you have a need, he's got some cattle and he can raise the price of beef anytime he wants to. You see, God holds it out and tells us to take it out so that he can bless us. And he says, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? And that word rob means, this is an interesting, it's not like a hold up. What this word rob means is to cover or defraud or to embezzle. To cover or to defraud or to embezzle. He says, you're defrauding me. You're embezzling. You're taking what belongs to me and you're spending it on yourself. You see, I don't buy the principle that says if I give God 10%, I can do whatever I want to do with the other 90. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. If I give God 10%, he still wants offerings on top of that. By the way, the Jewish tithe was 30%. So he still wants offering on top of that. But God wants me to discuss with him and to pray about how I spend the money that he lets me keep and what I do with it. I mean, there's, there's you know, your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand's doing, but I want to tell you something just to illustrate a point. There's a waitress at the Pancake Pantry that always waits on us. I mean, she's been there since 1970-something. She waits on us all the time. And she's basically very poor. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of money, but she's got the joy of Jesus all over her. I mean, it's just, I mean, it just is a fragrance that fills the room and the joy of the Lord on her. And when I'm there... I never leave that she doesn't get somewhere between a 30 to a 50% tip. Why? Because I've walked by too many tables in there where I know what the average price of a meal is for four people and they leave $2 on the table. And they've eaten $45 worth of food. So I'm going to make up for somebody else's disobedience. And you know what? I never come home saying, man, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish, I wish I hadn't given that much because Terry and I have learned something. You can't outgive God. You just can't do it. Hey, well, you know, it's tight right now. I mean, you know, sometimes Terry look at me and I say, you know, we need to do something. And she'll say, have you looked at the checkbook? Do you know what the check register says? Do you know what's, have we got everything paid? Do you know? I said, you just got to write the check. Now, I'm telling you all that to tell you what God's convicted me of. I give a tithe and I give above a tithe to this church and I give to other ministries outside of this church. But God's convicted me that, now this is just me, this is not for any, I'm just telling you what God's convicted me of. And I told Terry this this week, God's convicted me that although I give 
And in fact, it comes out of my check before I ever get my check. I mean, it just, it's there. It's out, it's gone. It's my generation's gifts and, and my time. They're all gone before I ever get a check. But God's convicted me that I've come and I've asked people to give and asked people to obey God, but people never see me giving. And so I've made a commitment that whether it's a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars or twenty dollars, whatever I might have in my pocket, or whatever check we need to write, even though I'm already giving and I don't have to prove it to anybody, I'm not going to come to church empty-handed. Because that's wrong. Oh, I already gave. But I'm not going to come into God's house and sing praises to His name and ask Him to fill me with His Spirit while I'm preaching and then watch that plate go by and I didn't put anything in. So whether it's just a dollar or two or whatever, I want to give. And there's several people that have said that to me in the past and I just kind of let it go over my head and justify the fact that I'd already given. But I can't do that any longer. I've got to at least come and give God an offering. And it'll just be over and above. And by the way, most of the time it won't be in an envelope and I won't get credit for it, but that's not why I give. I don't give so that I can take a deduction. I give because God tells me to give. Now, I'm grateful for the deduction, but that's not why I do what I do. He says, you're cursed with a curse. And let me tell you what that means because when I saw this, I, I thought this is why so many Christians are in bondage. The word cursed means to be hemmed in, boxed in. I can't get out of the circumstance I'm in. I can't get out of the situation I'm in. I'm powerless. Listen, I'm powerless to resist the devourer. Wow. The reason we don't have victory in spiritual warfare, the reason the armor doesn't fit, the reason our prayers go unanswered is because if we're not obeying God in a clear area, we are rendered powerless to resist. And I don't want to be powerless because I know what I'm up against. And it's a war. And it's a battle. So I want to go to chapter 4 and verse 2, and we've got two more minutes. I've gone way long tonight, and you've been very patient. Chapter 4 and verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. <laughs> you ever seen a calf let out of a stall? How they just, their legs just kind of, they just start going crazy. I mean, they just, they start kicking and jumping and, you know, there's not a whole lot of coordinated. It's not ballet. But God says, for those of you who fear my name, when you see what I'm going to do with you and what I want to do in your midst, for those of you that get it, for those of you that fear my name, you're going to be like a calf that's been set free. You're just going to be able to roam and enjoy the land. Why? Because I've rebuked the devourer. And I've opened up the windows of heaven and poured out blessings on you because you've returned to me and I've returned to you and I've blessed you with a blessing and I've taken away the curse and the, and the devourer. I've taken all that stuff away. And the difference in revival between drought and rain is the difference between people agreeing with what God says and those who argue 
with what he says. There's only one person that can keep me from having a great encounter with God during refresh. And that's me. That's me. If God doesn't meet me at the point of my desperation and longing, it'll be my fault, not his. Folks, we've got to get this. We've got to get this. We can't let this just slide off of our backs like water off a duck's back. We've got to get hold of this. Because God has so much He wants to do. He has blessed us in so many ways, and we know that, but He's got so much more He wants to do with us beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. God's got ways He wants to bless us. But let me tell you what the Lord told me, and I told this to Alex, uh, I think when we were flying back from Los Angeles. I said, Alex... It's going to be hard for us to ask God to bless facing the giants if we're not obeying God in areas where we know we need to be obeying Him. And we better be careful because we are in the days of our greatest opportunity as a church to make an impact. And they're also our most dangerous days for failure and embarrassing the kingdom. Which side that falls on depends on what God can trust this church with. Can God trust this church with success? I can answer that for you. Only if we are successful in obeying what God has told us to do. Because our blessings are never going to rise above our obedience. And I want God to do some great things. I mean, I've, just, I've watched this movie so much. I, I've watched this movie more than I've seen videos of my children growing up. I sit in the theater now and quote the lines while it's going on. When I'm at a screening, I'm sitting there and I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that talks all the way through a movie because I'm doing everybody's line. You know, let's just get some jumper cables and go home. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I've got all these lines. I'm just, and it just, I can't get them out of my head. And I'm thinking, boy, God, you could do so much. And I've met all these people. And my fear would be, that they would see this movie and they would somehow say, I want to go find out what that church is like. And they would find us not being what we appear to be on the big screen. But that we just are another church with a few more bells and whistles. I don't want us to be that. I want us to be a church that's blessed by God and used by God honored by God. I want us to be a church where the glory of God is present. And that all begins with me. And then with you. And then with somebody else. Until God just shows up. And when He does, we'll know it.
we won't have to make any announcements. There won't be any need to send out any emails. We'll know it. And we're making a step in the right direction, by the way, by coming in here and praying before we gather and worship on Sunday nights. Because in a prayer environment, God can speak to us about the things that are on His heart. It is not just for us to speak to God about what's on our heart. It is for God to speak to us about what's on His heart. And I want to tell you what's on the heart of God tonight. That He would be glorified in this church. And that nobody else could take any credit or glory for what he does. It could happen this week. It could happen next week. But God wants it to happen to the balls in our court. And he says, return to me. And I will return to you. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name.